So tonight's talk is about Mary, and what better place to do it than in Los Angeles? Because it was actually only fairly recently that I found out that Los Angeles is a shortened version of the name. I'm going to butcher the Spanish. <laughs> El pueblo de Nuestra Señora, la reina de Los Angeles. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I, I walked the Camino across Spain. Uh, <laughs> this phrase never came up. But it's Our Lady, uh, Queen of Angels. And we're going to be speaking a little bit about Mary's queenship later. And it's funny that I speak on the subject of Mary, because this happens quite often. Because out of all of the doctrines in Catholicism, out of all of the devotions, the one that I have struggled with the most has been Mary. So really, this talk is more of a story as to why I had issues with the Blessed Mother and how I struggled with that and how I ultimately came to accept and see the beauty in what the Catholic Church teaches. But before we go any further, we should pray. And I'd like to pray a prayer of the Byzantine Church. In case you're unaware, within the Catholic Church, there are a number of different rites, there are a number of different churches. And I go to a Byzantine Catholic parish. We're still in communion with the Pope. We still celebrate the same Eucharist. We're still Catholic. But the way we express our theology is a little different. And the way we celebrate the Sunday liturgy is also quite different. So this is a prayer that we pray every Sunday. So if you'll please join me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is truly proper to glorify you, O Theotokos, the ever-blessed Immaculate and the Mother of our God, more honorable than the cherubim, and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, who a virgin gave birth to God the Word, true bearer of God, we magnify thee. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, I've got a couple of handouts, um, if you'd like just to pass, pass them around. And they just contain some of the quotations that I'm going to be giving, just so you've got something to take away afterwards. So I said that I originally had issues and struggles with Mary. So where did that really come from? Well, I grew up Catholic, and we went to Mass every week. My mother was a catechist, and she helped with children's liturgy, and my sister did the same. And after my first Holy Communion, I was an altar server. And some of my most vivid childhood memories are of the three of us praying together before bed. So I had a really good foundation. But Mary didn't figure in our family's spirituality. You know, she was very, very rarely ever mentioned. Perhaps at Christmas, but you kind of have to at that point. It's very difficult to talk about a baby being born without at least mentioning the mother once. But I don't think I actually prayed a rosary until my mid-twenties, maybe, maybe early twenties. And I think if you'd asked the eight or nine-year-old David about Mary, I think my profound theological reflection would have been, Mary is for girls. Because <laughs> I noticed girls tended to be a little bit more interested in her. And I, I concluded, well... Mary is often pictured wearing pretty dresses. Girls like pretty dresses. Uh, Mary is often pictured with a baby Jesus. Girls like babies. Uh, it, for example, in the kindergarten nativity play, all of the girls wanted to be Mary because it meant that they got to bring their doll uh, to school and their doll got to be baby Jesus. Whereas the little boys, we were less interested in that. We didn't even really want to be St. Joseph. 
Because if you were St. Joseph, that meant you were in very close proximity to the girl that prayed Mary. <laughs> and as all little boys know, little girls have cooties. <laughs> it, 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 it is wisdom that has served me well throughout my life. <laughs> and I'm afraid to say I don't think that my theological reflection on Mary really advanced much more than that. No, as a little boy, I want to be a shepherd, I want to bring sticks to school. <laughs> or maybe be one of the magi, and then you get a flashy outfit. Actually, one thing I found out recently, I, I, I'd asked a friend if they do this in the States, and it doesn't seem to be a thing. In England, when they're preparing the magi, they typically, they'll cut out a crown with gold-colored paper, and then they'll glue candies on to act as jewels. Oh. You guys are much more sensible not doing this, because in every kindergarten uh, nativity play, that I've ever been to, at some point, some kid always takes off the crown or steals it and starts chewing. But yes, my, my, my recognition of the Blessed Mother really didn't change for quite some time. You know, I became a teenager and I continued going to Mass. Some people have some kind of a rebellion. I never really did. Uh, I continued going each Sunday. I, I wouldn't have dreamed telling my mother that I was going to stay in bed. But I also quite enjoyed it. It was about this time that we had started going to the Benedictine monastery that was attached to my school. And it had beautiful Gothic architecture, these wonderful arches and these vaulted ceilings. We had a fantastic, basically professional choir on about once a month. And the rest of the time, we had the monks singing otherworldly Gregorian chant. And I always, I always, even as a teenager, I appreciated the peace and the silence that I found in that space in the Mass when communion has ended, but before the final prayer. It didn't hurt, however, that there were a few attractive girls of my age who also went to Mass. <laughs> it has been said that God's beauty is made manifest in the world in many different ways, but just as a teenage boy, this was a way in which I was particularly interested. Yet, throughout my teenage years, Mary still didn't figure in my spirituality, or even in the formation that I received at a Catholic school. Win for Catholic education, right there. It wasn't until university that my faith really, really became alive. And that's kind of a story, another story for another time, that we can talk about a little bit in Q&A. But it was primarily through a group called Verbum Day. Now, this isn't Opus Day, that's something a little different. But it's a similar idea in terms of that it's an ecclesial community that's made up of priests and missionaries. And they had a great emphasis on evangelization and also prayer with the word. So it was around this time that I really started reading and praying with scripture regularly. And it was as I was part of this community that I started to realize that I was kind of the odd one out. Most of the other people here, Mary played a role in their spirituality. And I remember one time when I was having spiritual direction with the chief missionary, a lady called Maeve. She'd met my mother a couple of weeks beforehand. And in spiritual direction, I said to her, Mary, I just don't really get it. And she said, David, with a mother as wonderful as yours, she loved my mother, with a mother as wonderful as yours, how can you possibly not love Mary? Her point was that since I had such a great example of an earthly mother, how could I just not naturally love my heavenly mother? But it just still didn't really make sense to me. And then I graduated and I left university, 
And that was when I went out into the world and experienced regular Catholic parish life. And this was not a good time. It was during this time that I became more and more critical of the Catholic Church. My objections were the fairly typical ones you hear. Homilies are boring. I'm sure, sure yours aren't, Father. <laughs> but at the parish that I was at, homilies were boring or just full of platitudes that meant nothing. The music was either just abysmal or just so kitsch. And I really mourned the lack of community. Because you see, when I was part of Bourbon Day, I was part of a vibrant community that was engaged with their faith and that looked outwards and wanted to share the faith with others. And many of these people were also around my own age. Yet I then came to a Catholic parish where it was not like that. So it wasn't long before I started attending a Protestant congregation. And it was there that I had dynamic preaching, fantastic music, excellent quality, and a really vibrant community where my faith really did grow. But unfortunately, also during this time, this was when my disinterest in Mary started to morph and turn into objections to Mary. And it was the fairly typical thing that you often hear from Protestants, that Catholics focus way too much on Mary, Catholics shouldn't pray to Mary, that we attribute to Mary things that are only, only possible for God. Fast forward a few years, and I started seeing problems with Protestant theology. Again, this is kind of another talk for another time. But principally for me, sola scriptura, the idea that the Bible and the Bible alone should be our infallible rule of faith, that fell apart for me. And I recognized that Jesus founded a church, and it was the Catholic Church. So although I returned, I didn't have all of my questions answered. There were still a lot of things that I just didn't understand or didn't agree with. But I would now compare it to the events of John 6. If you remember, Jesus has given his hard saying. He has told his followers, you must eat my flesh. You must drink my blood. And people started leaving. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you going to leave as well? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, I would like to suggest that St. Peter didn't really understand the whole eat my flesh, drink my blood better than anybody else. But he knew Jesus and he trusted Jesus. And so he knew that was the place he needed to be. Wherever Jesus was, he needed to be there. And that in time, maybe this eat my flesh, drink my blood thing would make sense. And then a year later, there's the last supper and Jesus takes the bread, takes the wine, says, this is my body, this is my blood. I've often wondered in that moment if there was awe and silence or the sound of, oh. <laughs> but likewise, I didn't have all the answers. I had objections and questions and misunderstandings. But I recognized that I was in Jesus' church that he founded. There was nowhere else for me to be. And that if this was indeed his church, if he so wished, over time, he would show me what I was missing. And really, the rest of this talk is about, in this return, how I came to accept the Catholic teaching about Mary. And the things that helped me, I think probably mainly three. Mm -hmm. The first was work of apostolates like Catholic Answers. These were the people that first taught me the Catholic faith. Mm 
really taught me the, the, the meat of the Catholic faith, as well as apostles like the Institute of Catholic Culture. There were also a couple of friends of mine who were Catholics, and I loved them. They, again, they were alive in their faith. They were evangelistic. They loved Jesus, but they also had room in their heart for Mary. And a lot of my softening towards Mary was simply by watching them, seeing the way they integrated Mary into their spiritual life. But if I had to pick one thing that really turned me around with regards to the Blessed Mother, it would be the early church. And specifically, how the early church read sacred scripture. Because the early church made use of something known as biblical typology. The idea is that the Bible is one book. God is the author of it all. And in the Old Testament, he's preparing us for what is coming in the New. That in the Old Testament, we see foreshadowing. And in the New Testament, we see fulfillment. That when we come across an event in the New Testament, it's an echo of what has come before. Mark Twain is often quoted as saying, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. That's what we find between the Old and New Testament. We see types and figures reach their fulfillment with the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom. And we see that expressed in Jesus, in his mother, in the church, and in the sacraments. Because God is the divine storyteller. St. Augustine, one of the fathers from the uh, early church, he had a wonderful phrase that he used to describe this. He said that the New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the old is unveiled in the new. That when we bring the light of Christ to the Old Testament, we see things that even the most pious and learned rabbis would have missed. And we get to see it because of the light of Christ, because of the gospel and because of the New Testament. And we actually have this handed to us on a platter in the Mass. I know we're in Easter and Pentecost time at the moment, so it's a little different. But typically, where does the first reading normally come from? Remember I said, yeah, there we are. There's always a slight pause. Yes, no rhetorical questions here. The Old Testament. The Old Testament. And almost always the gospel passage for the Sunday will be related to that Old Testament passage. That Old Testament passage is either going to be prophesying something that's going to happen, that we're going to read about in the gospel, or we will see a figure, we will see a pattern, we will see a type repeated. And I remember when one of my friends in England as I was on this return journey, she really wanted me to love Mary more. And she tried to use biblical typology to show me why Mary was holy. And she said, Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. So before we can talk about the New Covenant, well, what was, what was, the, what was the Ark of the, of the Old Covenant? Has everyone here seen Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> Those of you that haven't need to reconsider your life choices and watch better movies. <laughs> so, if you haven't seen it before the end of this week, I expect you to have watched it. Fantastic movie. But the Ark of the Covenant, we find this mentioned in the book of Exodus. Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God commands him to construct this Ark. It's a chest. It's a box. And... There are some quite detailed descriptions as to how it's to be formed. That it's to be covered inside and out with gold. That there are two, two angels, two cherubim, sitting on top with their wings outstretched. 
This ark was first of all stored in what is known as the tabernacle. It was a tent. It was a mobile temple that as the children of Israel moved through the desert, they picked up the tent and moved it to wherever they were settling. And the ark was kept inside there. The ark was symbolic of the presence of God for the people. And when they went out into battle, you remember the story of the, of the fall of Jericho when Joshua leads them in the promised land. What is at the head of, of, their, of their army? The priests and the Ark of the Covenant. And when they finally settled in Jerusalem, the Ark was uh, taken to the temple. When King Solomon built the temple, the Ark was taken and put in the most sacred spot, into the Holy of Holies. I said it was a box, so what was it containing? We actually read about this in the Epistle to the Hebrews. And we're told that there are three things inside. The first is that there were the tablets of the law. So the tablets of the law that God gave to Moses. The word of God. There was also Aaron's staff. So Aaron, if you recall, was Moses' brother. And he was a Levite. And the Levites were priests. And Aaron was the high priest. So his, his staff, the symbol of his priestly authority, was also placed in this ark. And lastly, there was a gold jar that was filled with the manna. If you recall, as they traveled around the desert, God fed them with the bread of heaven, the manna. Well, they took some of the manna, placed it in a gold jar, and then placed the jar inside the Ark of the Covenant. So inside the Ark of the Covenant, you have the word of God, the priestly staff, and the bread of heaven. And my friend, after we had gone through the contents of the Ark, she asked me a question. She said, David, what was in Mary's womb? And so I gave the obvious answer, Jesus. Like I said, another win for Catholic education. <laughs> she said, okay, yes, that's right. Would you say that Jesus is the word of God? I said, of course, that's how John's gospel begins. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. She said, okay, would you say that Jesus is a priest? Yes. Again, in the epistle to the Hebrews, it, said, it describes Jesus as a priest, our great high priest, just like Aaron. I started to realize where we were going with this. <laughs> the next obvious question is, is Jesus the bread of heaven? In John's gospel, he says he is. So all of the things that were in the Ark of the Covenant were inside Mary's womb. So why was the ark holy? It was holy because God declared it to be so. The ark was set apart for God's purposes. And really, that's what the word holy means. If something's holy, it is set apart for the purposes of God. The Levites, the priestly tribe, were called to be holy to the Lord, set apart for his service in a very particular way. And the ark was also holy because of its contents. And I started to see Mary is holy for exactly the same reasons. Mary was declared by God to be holy through the words of the angel Gabriel when he said, Hail, full of grace. Now, we could just, we, I could talk for like an hour just on full of grace because it's a very particular word. It can't very easily be translated. But God declared her to be holy. Like the ark, Mary was set apart for a God's purposes, a very holy purpose, to bring the Messiah, to be the womb in which God would become incarnate. All of history would change. And the ark was holy because of its contents. Well, in Mary's womb was the most precious thing. 
that had ever been on the earth. But Mary is actually superior to the ark in many ways. And you see this idea in biblical typology all the time, that what, when you have things being foreshadowed, the fulfillment is always so much better. Because the ark was a box. Mary was flesh and blood made in the image and likeness of God. The ark was covered in gold, but Mary was clothed with God's grace. The ark contained holy things, but Mary contained God himself. And although Jesus would one day say that he would feed us with his body and blood, in the meantime, as he was a, in utero and as a baby, Mary fed him with her body and blood. After a little while, I found out that my friend was not a theological genius. <laughs> she had cheated. She didn't make this stuff up herself. She was drawing from Catholic tradition. She was drawing from the works of the early church fathers. Those, those men and bishops and writers who took over the running of the church after the apostles passed. And this was how they read the scriptures. There's a quotation on your sheets from St. Athanasius of Alexandria. This is, in a, this is in a very early 4th century. This is what he says. O noble virgin, who is your equal in greatness, O dwelling place of God the Word? To whom among all creatures shall I compare you, O virgin? You are greater than them all, O ark of the covenant, clothed with purity instead of gold. You are the ark in which is found the golden vessel containing the true manna, that is the flesh in which divinity resides. And as I did more study, I found that there were many more parallels between the Ark of the Covenant and the Blessed Mother. I've included the scriptural references if you would like to take the challenge. But if you read about the adventures of the Ark and then you compare them to Luke's account of the visitation, you will notice some very similar things. And again, in the Q&A, we might talk a little bit more about that and about what actually happened to the ark. Because in the book of Revelation, St. John is told that he sees heaven open and he sees the ark of the covenant. And the very next thing he talks about is seeing a vision of a woman in heaven crowned in stars. And that's a rather nice transition to the second piece of biblical typology that really helped me understand Mary. That is Mary as the new queen. When you look at the works of the early church fathers, particularly from about the 4th century onwards, they very regularly refer to her as queen. Queen of the kingdom, queen of humanity, queen of angels. That's the city's name, has it? St. Ephraim, in the 4th century, he said, Majestic and heavenly maid, lady, queen, protect me and keep me under your wing, lest Satan, the sower of destruction, glory over me. Why did they call her queen? And I didn't understand this until I read a book by Dr. Scott Hahn called Hail Holy Queen. I hated it originally. It was, only on the, it was only on the second reading that I started to admit he had some points. Because he, he explains, in the Gospels, the evangelists take great pains to explain that Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the son of David, fulfilling the promises of David, that he is bringing with him the restored Davidic kingdom. This is why we see Jesus appointing 12 apostles. That's not an accident. Solomon appointed 12 stewards to administer the kingdom for him. Jesus chooses one of the 12 
for a particularly special role. We read in Isaiah that there was a chief steward, a chief steward in the kingdom who had authority, who was seen as a father figure, who had the keys of the kingdom, even. So none of this should have been that surprising to me, but it really was. But Dr. Hahn then goes on and says, if Jesus is the new Davidic king, and he's bringing the Davidic kingdom, then Mary is the queen. Now that seems a bit strange to us, because who is typically the queen? The wife of the king. The wife of the king, exactly. But that wasn't the case in ancient Israel, and it wasn't the case in most Near Eastern kingdoms. Rather than the wife of the king, it was the queen mother. Does anyone know why? Can anyone guess, why is, it, why is the queen the king's mother? And not his wife. Say that again? Yeah! The king usually had quite a few wives. If you read the account of Solomon, that number is very high. It was okay. He, he got the, the punishment it deserves. The punishment for polygamy is having more than one mother-in-law. But in these ancient kingdoms, the queen mother had a very important role. She had a, a title known as Geberah. It literally means great lady. And when we look in First Kings, we see King Solomon. He comes to be anointed as king. Does anyone know what mode of transport he chose to get to that coronation? How, did, how, did, how do you think King Solomon got to his, his, his anointing? Camel? Not camel. It was an animal. A donkey. Is it therefore any surprise that when another person comes into Jerusalem, he comes in on a donkey and they say, Hosanna to whom? The son of David. And then when he is executed, what is the sign above his head? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So in 1 Kings, we see Solomon is anointed king, and we then are reintroduced to his mother, Bathsheba. Now, if you recall, this is the woman with whom King David committed adultery, got pregnant, orchestrated the death of her husband. Now, the child that they had conceived died in the womb, but they then had another child, and that was Solomon. And Solomon becomes king. His half-brother, Adonijah, had tried to usurp the throne, but had ultimately failed. And in 1 Kings, we read about Adonijah coming to Bathsheba and asking her to intercede on his behalf with the king. And here we see one of the functions of the Geberah, the great lady, the queen mother, that she would, inter uh, that she would intercede on behalf of the people to her son, the king. And in the second chapter of Kings, we are told what this looked like. We're told that Bathsheba comes in, Solomon arises from his throne. He stands when a lady enters the room. Because at least at this point in his career, Solomon was still a gentleman. <laughs> but he rises to meet his mother, and he bows to, down towards her. This is the most powerful man in the land, bowing towards his mother as a sign of honour and respect. And then he sits on his throne and commands that another one be brought to his right hand for his mother to sit down. Bathsheba makes the request to her son. He turns her down. 
because he realizes what his half-brother is doing. His, his half-brother is trying to usurp the throne once again. But we have a much better intercessor than Bathsheba. Our queen mother is Mary. And we have a much better king than Solomon. We have Jesus. And hopefully as Jesus' subjects and those who go to his mother for intercession, we will come with slightly purer intentions than Adonijah. So I began to see Mary's role as queen and also her role as an intercessor. And it was particularly through Catholic Answers that I started to see that saintly intercession just made sense. I mean, Protestants will often talk about Catholics praying to dead people. But Jesus himself said that God is not God of the, of the dead, but of the living. Those that we pray to are more alive than you or I, because they are now standing before the throne of God. And we actually see an image of this in the book of Revelation, of angels and saints offering these bowls of incense, which we're told are the prayers of the saints on earth. And a beautiful image is given to us once again in the book of Hebrews. That of a great cloud of witnesses. And the picture that's painted in that passage is of us in an arena, running a race. And in all of the stalls, we're surrounded by former medal winners. All of those Christians who have run the race and reached the end. And they are cheering us on as we ourselves race towards that finish line. So that was Mary as Ark of the New Covenant, Mary as the New Queen. And now the last major biblical typology image is that of Mary the New Eve. Now in scripture, Jesus is specifically identified as the New Adam. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. And St. Paul explains that how all fell in Adam as a consequence of his sin, all are raised to life with the new Adam, with Christ. Now the church fathers saw this, and then they asked a very obvious question. Well, if Jesus is the new Adam, who's the new Eve? And from the earliest days of the church, they very clearly saw it has to be Mary. Because they saw so many parallels. They saw that these two virgins, they both received the word of an angel. Who speaks to, who speaks to Eve? Who, who tempts her to the fall? Yeah, Satan, who was a fallen angel. So Eve receives the word of an angel. Mary receives the word of an angel. Gabriel. Eve responds with distrust. She doesn't think that God has her best interests at heart, that he's holding back from her. Mary responds with faith. Eve responds with disobedience. She takes the fruit. Mary response of obedience. She says, let it be done unto me according to your word. With Eve, there was a result of death. But with Mary's answer, we have life. Eve reached out and she grasped the fruit of the tree. But it's the fruit of Mary's womb that is nailed to the tree for our salvation. These two women are the hinges of salvation. And in this doctrine of Mary as the new Eve, we really find the germ of all Catholic belief concerning the Blessed Mother. And it's not just the parallels between the fall and the Annunciation. If you look at the Gospel of John, you might notice some real similarities between that and the book of Genesis. How does the book of Genesis begin? In the beginning. In the beginning. How does John's Gospel begin? In the beginning. 
in the beginning. And you find a real motif between both. They speak about lightness and darkness, between the spirit and the water. And if you actually trace through John's gospel, you'll notice it says the next day, the next day, the next day, the third day. You add all of those up, you have seven days. And on the seventh day, just as in Genesis, there is a wedding. So if we go back to Genesis, uh, on day six, Adam is naming all of the animals. He's going, dog, cat, giraffe. <laughs> and this is when God puts him into a sleep. And then when he opens his eyes, presumably on the seventh day, he sees this vision, this radiant beauty. And he had spent the previous day going, dog, cat, giraffe. And he accidentally does the same thing here. He goes, whoa, man. <laughs> That is the worst joke in this entire talk. <laughs> but it's one that I do love. That's not quite what he says. But what he says is almost just as good. He says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What's he saying? The priest say, dog, cat, giraffe. Isn't it amazing how guys get really into poetry when girls are around? <laughs> But the language he's using there, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, is covenant-making language. We're seeing Adam and Eve become husband and wife. So we move from Genesis back to John's Gospel. On the seventh day, there is a wedding. Where is that wedding? Cana. Cana in Galilee. Have you ever noticed that the bride and groom at this wedding are never named? It's because John doesn't care. That's not... <laughs> Such a man thing. It, it is such a, such a man thing. I, I'm at a stage in my life where pretty much all of my friends are getting married, and whenever I speak to my mother or my sister, they'll ask me questions like what the dress was like, what the bouquet was like. Oh, okay. I've learned just to make, make up answers. <laughs> t t t giving the response I don't remember just is apparently not good enough. But the bride and groom aren't mentioned because that's not the point. That's not what John wants to draw your attention to. He is showing you that we are now having a new creation throughout his gospel, and we now have a new wedding with a new Adam and a new Eve. And what happens? They run out of wine. And so what does Mary do? She goes and speaks to Jesus. Remember the function of the Geberah to intercede on the people with her son? And just the way that Eve prompted Adam to evil, we now have the new Eve, Mary, prompting the new Adam, Jesus, to perform his first miracle, his first sign. But what does Jesus say when she points out they have no more wine? He says, woman, what is that between us? Now, I know Jesus is God and everything, but if I responded to my mother with woman, He did do that more than once. Now, I, I'm a grown man of 33 years old. And there is no way I would respond to my mother like that and live. But Jesus isn't using that term as a sign of disrespect. He is drawing our attention to the fact that we now have a new creation, a new Adam and a new Eve. How is Eve referred to before the fall? As woman. 
This was Eve's name before the fall. After the fall, we're told that Adam calls her Eve because she's going to be the mother of all the living. Now, that was John's first sign. In John's Gospel, there are very few miracles. He calls them signs. There are about seven or eight, depending upon how you count them. And the new Eve, Mary, is at the first sign. And she's also at the last one. She's at the foot of the cross. And what does Jesus do? He says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Practically, Jesus gives the care of Mary to St. John. But again, we have that term, woman. Once again, we have the new Adam and the new Eve and a tree, the word of the cross. And in the same way that Eve was mother of all of the living, Mary is the mother of all of those supernaturally alive in Christ. This is what the early church said. St. Justin Martyr, and this comes from about 150 AD, so this is literally the very next generation after the apostles. He says, For Eve, who was a virgin and undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, brought forth disobedience and death. But the Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced the good tidings to her that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon her and that the power of the highest would overshadow her. About 30 years later, one of my favorite saints, Irenaeus of Lyon, he wrote this. After expounding the Eve-Mary link, he then says, Thus, the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. While the Virgin Eve had bound in unbelief, the Virgin Mary loosed through faith. Has anyone here done the Novena Mary Undoer of Knots? That theology comes from St. Irenaeus of Lyon in 180 AD. Quite possibly. I, I, it's funny, when people talk about um, theology, I say, oh, that's from the... 7th, 8th century, I, I don't do modern theologians. I, if, if you want to talk about the first few centuries, I'm much more familiar. So the, the, it certainly could have been popularized there, but the theology being expressed of Mary the undoer of knots comes from St. Irenaeus of Lyon. And he was French. Well, at least he lived, he lived in France, at least. So we've gone through Mary the new ark, Mary the new queen, Mary the new Eve. And as I got deeper and deeper into this biblical typology. And really, we've just barely scratched the surface of even just some of these images. I started to see who Mary was, her holiness, her role in salvation. And I started to overcome the objections that I'd had. Catholics are often accused of worshipping Mary by Protestants, and I think it's typically because we sing to her. <laughs> but think about it. If you don't have the Eucharist, if you don't have the sacrifice of the Mass, what do you go to church for? You go to hear a sermon, have some community, and to sing some songs. And if that's all you do at church, then singing is worship. But of course singing isn't necessarily worship. We sing to each other all the time. If it's somebody's birthday, what do we do? Happy. We sing happy birthday. At least in England, if somebody leaves the company, it's usually quite traditional to go to the pub at lunchtime on Friday. <laughs> and usually after a pint or two, somebody will start singing, for he's a jolly good fellow. <laughs> and for some of the girls that I've dated, I have been known on occasion to bust out my guitar and serenade. 
Oh. My singing isn't that good. <laughs> but what's kind of funny is some of our earliest, uh, our first, some of our earliest attestations of Marian devotion actually are through song. This comes from about 250 AD. It's often known by the Latin title "Sub Tuum Presidium." Under your mercy, we take refuge, O Mother of God. Do not reject our supplications in necessity, but deliver us from danger. O you alone pure and alone blessed. And this hymn is still used in the church today. We use it at my church, and particularly in monasteries, you'll, you'll hear this, this song chanted in Latin. The early church saw Mary as an intercessor, and they would sing to her. And I remembered one of the things that always slightly troubled me when I was going to non-Catholic churches were well, the words of Mary herself. She says, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. I couldn't see how that happened once you removed the Catholic and Orthodox churches. In, this, in my own congregation, how is Mary's name blessed? How has she been blessed through the centuries? Much like my own home, she was very, very rarely ever mentioned. And I heard more than one uh, Christmas sermon where somehow... She wasn't mentioned at all. So the only way I could see Mary's own words being fulfilled were actually in the Catholic and Orthodox churches. And whenever I was afraid that perhaps, perhaps we do go too far with Mary, I was always comforted by the words of St. Maximilian Kolbe. He was one of the martyrs in the World War II in Auschwitz. He said, never be afraid of loving Mary. You'll never be afraid of loving her too much because you'll never be able to love her more than Jesus did. It was part of the law to honour your father and mother. And every Christian will agree that Jesus kept that law perfectly. And I think every Christian would say that we should also imitate Christ. So if Jesus perfectly honoured his mother, surely we should do the same. An example, an image I like to use, is that of an art exhibit. Imagine one of your friends is a sculptor and invites you to his gallery, uh, his, his gallery open evening. How do you think you might respond if you walk in, you don't look at any of the sculptures, and you spend the entire time talking to him? Well, he might be glad that you turned up, but it's a bit insulting, isn't it? However, what if, when you arrived, you went around and you looked at all of the work that he had produced, and marveled at its beauty, of its creativity, of what he managed to achieve here, and calling other people over and saying, look at what wonderful thing he did in this particular work. And in this one, it's different, but it's still amazing. This is what we do when we honor the saints and we love them. If you love the art, you will be honoring the artist. And there's a wonderful quotation from, of all people, the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, he said, true honour of Mary is the honour of God, the praise of God's grace. Mary does not wish that we come to her, but through her to God. But through her to God. And I've heard other people compare it to the sun and the moon. When you see, when you look up at, at, at night and you see this, the moon shining, it's not its own light. It's the light that's coming from the sun. As you read through the fathers, they will often... Hold up Mary as this exemplar, as this model, particularly for those 
who have chosen the vocation of consecrated celibacy. And they hold her up as this model. And I once heard a priest just put it very simply. He said, we are all called to imitate Mary. Because even in the scant piece of it, pieces of information we have about her life in the New Testament, we have a pattern for the Christian life. Mary was open to God's call. She said, her fiat, her let it be done unto me. We too should be open to the call of God, just like Mary. Mary cared for others. Well, pregnant, she took a very dangerous journey to go and see her pregnant cousin. She praised God with her life. When she meets her cousin, she says, my soul proclaims the greatness of God. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That same joy we should radiate in our lives as well. Mary brought the needs of others to Jesus. At the wedding in Cana, they had no wine. She brought that need to Jesus. And we should do the same. We should be bringing the needs of others to Jesus. She was also a guide to others. At that wedding, she told the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's good advice. It's advice we should take, and it's also the advice we should give other people. She meditated on God's work. It says in scripture that she treasured all these things in her heart. Mary was a contemplative, and we should be too, to consider the work of God in our lives and in the lives of others. And it's Catholic teaching that at the end of her life, Mary is assumed body and soul into heaven. And this is our end too. Our bodies might be delayed a little bit until the resurrection. But our goal in life is to be body and soul in heaven, to be immersed into the life of the Blessed Trinity. And we meditate on all of these things when we pray the rosary, as we follow the life of Mary and her son, to use her as an example and as a powerful intercessor as we try and do whatever Jesus tells us. So let's just end in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that throughout history you have been preparing us. Through figures and models and foreshadowing, you prepared us for the coming of your Son, but you also prepared us for the woman through whom he would come to the world. You poured out your grace and created a masterpiece. As we meditate upon her life, let us be inspired by what a life cooperating with your grace can look like. And Mother Mary, we ask for you to pray for us, to bring our petitions to your Son, the King. As we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Now, Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.